The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please follow in your Bible as I read this morning from the 40th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. We're taking a break from the considerations of life after death. I hope to come back to that in January and February, the series that we've been pursuing. But for this season, I wanted to stop and and look in several weeks at this important chapter. You hear its words, particularly the opening of it, this time of year very often. And I think it gets read or it gets sung, and we don't explore it, what it's all about. I'm going to read Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Follow along. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one calling in the desert says, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Recently, I watched a movie that depicted a man who was an American engineer working in an unnamed South American country. It seemed like it could easily have been Colombia or one of those countries disturbed by drugs and terrorism. And this man was in charge of building a dam, a hydroelectric hydroelectric dam project. And he was kidnapped in the midst of his work by a terrorist group who held him for five months. They dragged him into the jungle. He was injured along the way. He went through a lot of deprivations, and his feet were all raw. His shoes were completely worn out. He had injuries, and he was in a really deprived state. While ransom negotiations were underway for this man, his wife and others were able to learn the location where he was being held. And so a raid was organized by mercenary soldiers, armed men with skills to go into the jungle silently and uh, with stealth to come into that camp and find the man and liberate him. One interesting twist in the story was that as these American soldiers for hire came all armed to the teeth, And they appeared in camouflage gear and everything else at the door of the hut where this hostage was being held. His reaction to them was great fear. And it took him quite a while 
to stop resisting them because he believed this was some new attack, some new group of terrorists perhaps ready to do something else awful to him. He couldn't see these folks as saviors at all. And it took a while to convince him, you need to come with us. We're going to liberate you. Well, I believe that man's reaction to an offer of liberty from captivity fits into what Isaiah 40 is teaching, and I'll come back to that in a few minutes. First, I need to tell you that this chapter, Isaiah 40, is one of the most eloquent chapters in the Bible, even seen purely from a literary standpoint. If you would run your your eyes down this chapter, you will spot many sentences and paragraphs and lines that you recognize, even all the way to the end about people mounting up on wings like eagles and running and not be weary. Hopefully, we'll get to that by the end of the month. But it's a great chapter. It's a powerful chapter. And yet, Isaiah wasn't writing it primarily as a work of literature. He was a man under burden to be God's oracle, God's prophet. God's message was in him, and he was bursting to say it. His very name, the name Isaiah, means Jehovah God is my salvation. And that was the message that he had to say. And it pours out of him in such majesty and grandeur because the message itself was a tremendous message. We often hear this text, particularly this first part, read in the season of Advent coming to Christmas because the truths that are here point to the coming of Christ. Jesus isn't mentioned. Messiah isn't mentioned. Christ isn't mentioned. And yet the things that are prophesied that will come true only come true, we know, because of Him and what He did in bringing salvation. And so I want to try to open this up to you a little bit this morning. The first word here from Isaiah 40 to Jewish captives who were or would be held when they heard this in slave-like bondage to a conquering nation, Babylon, is this word. Your hard servitude is over and your release has been paid for. Now, you need a real quick historical sketch here. Everyone who analyzes the book of Isaiah says a whole new section begins at chapter 40. Up to the end of chapter 39, we have a historical account with prophecy woven into it of the divided nation of Israel, once called Israel when it was glorious and and at its peak of power under David and Solomon. You may know, if you remember your Sunday school history at all, that under Solomon's sons, the nation divided. And the northern nation with its capital in Samaria was called Israel. The southern nation called Judah had its capital at Jerusalem. Now, those two nations have suffered different fates at this point where we are in history. I don't have to give you all the dates and everything. But the northern nation, Israel, has been conquered. Assyria has conquered them, has come in and cruelly taken them away and almost obliterated any trace that they were ever there. There's no worship of God going on in Samaria any longer except by some vassals of Assyria left who were sort of mongrel people not really worshiping God in a correct way. But then here is Judah, capital of Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, resisting, and it has not been conquered. And in Isaiah's time, it was not conquered. And yet, if you looked at the second last verse of chapter 39, you would see there the prediction, verse 7, that 
the descendants of King Hezekiah were going to be taken away and conquered by the king of Babylon. Now, it's about that captivity that the prophecy in chapter 40 speaks. Here's the interesting twist on that. It hasn't yet happened when Isaiah wrote. Isaiah was writing about a captivity that would come, that God said would come, but it hasn't happened yet. And not only would the captivity come, but God wanted the prophecy to be out there that the captivity would have an end, that all the means to end it was in God's control and in God's power. He was willing to stand aside and let their sins and their idolatry bring them into this time of captivity, but he was going to end it. You know, I was trying to think, could we possibly put ourselves in these people's place, hearing that our nation is going to be taken captive and everything we enjoy as a freedom is going to be denied, our worship is going to be squashed? We can't even think of that, can we? We can't even dream, what would the world power be that could come and take America over? They could say, you can't gather for worship anymore. You can't worship the Christian God. And your liberties to go wherever you want are ended. And we're going to rule you with a rod of iron. We can't even imagine that. It's just beyond our comprehension that someone could do that. But it happened to these people. The captivity that Isaiah predicted did happen after Isaiah died, almost a century after. Now, this is why this passage is very remarkable. The captivity and the release were way beyond Isaiah's lifetime. And yet the Lord prepared his people in advance before the great trouble came to them to know that he would do everything necessary to protect them and liberate them. Now the great message that comes forth then, the first words, and these are words from God, are the words comfort. Preach comfort to my people. To my people, says God. Speak tenderly to them. They need some tender words because when they go through this terrible thing that's coming, they will be in a rough condition. Speak tenderly. Tell them that their hard service, their time of punishment has been completed and their sin has been paid for. I see there are many ways you can comfort people. I give you the example that we all go through when there's been a sudden death to a friend or a church member. Perhaps a, a, a husband has died suddenly in an accident or a heart attack, and we go to, to visit the widow or go to the funeral, and you want to speak some sympathetic, comforting word, and you think, what can I possibly say? This woman has just had her life companion taken away, and I say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for your loss. And you feel so inadequate to comfort. There are other times when when comfort is just hollow. You might pat somebody on the shoulder and say, there, there now, it's all right, everything's going to be fine, when everything isn't fine. How do we get comfort? When God offers comfort, what he does is go to the root of the problem and undo it. And he knows that the reason Judah, the southern nation, is going to suffer this captivity is because of their sin, because of their idolatry, their loss of faith in him. And so he tells them, even before the captivity happens, look, you're going to go through this, you earned it, it's going to happen to you, but know that that which took you into this has a solution, and I will bring the solution. I will pay 
twice as much as you owe to me to set you free from captivity. Now, when we think of God paying for sin, if you're well-schooled at all in the Bible, your thoughts can only go in one direction. You say, when did God pay for sin? Why, at the cross of Jesus Christ, of course. And even this, even this ancient people, their sins were being paid for in what God had determined He would do in Christ. It's not an imposition on this passage to say this looks all the way forward to the New Testament and the hill of Calvary where God did pay twice as much, where He poured, you know, if you bought something for a Christmas gift and the the clerk said that'll be you know, $40.22, and you probably wouldn't say, you know, I'm feeling in the Christmas mood. Here's $80.44. I think you should just get twice as much. Of course not. You want half off. God says, I will pay twice what is owed. And here's a prophecy that looks all the way to the cross, the payment of Christ. He doesn't deal in cheap comfort, you see. You know these cards you can buy today? You go, they cost quite a bit more. Regular cards cost enough. But these things cost 5 or $6, and you open them up, and they play some silly tune, or somebody says a funny joke or something. And maybe you'd say, well, is that a sympathy message? Can I send somebody a little talking card for a sympathy message? Can I just, you know, condescend to them and say, well, now your situation isn't so bad. Have a cup of tea and take two aspirin and get a good night's sleep. You'll feel better. That isn't what God says. He doesn't give shallow comfort. He doesn't give hollow comfort. He gives comfort that goes to the root of the problem. He gives effective, real, life-changing comfort by saying, I've paid. I am paying for the sin that put you in this condition. Your strife is over. Do you know that? Do you know a core of peace in your life today? Or if you stopped and thought about your life situation, is it primarily about some kind of strife or antagonism or difficulty or problem that isn't working out? And you're all churning about it. Some relationship isn't right. Your job's gone wrong. You don't have a job. Your finances are a mess. You're not at peace. God is saying here, I am not your antagonist. I am the one who brings comfort. We sang a hymn that called Christ the key of David, one of his names. He's a key that unlocks a problem. He's the payment God made to unlock the penalty of sin that takes away our peace and puts us in strife against God. It may well be that someone today feels like that kidnapped man I talked about at the beginning. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in no communication at all with your family or, or anyone else, dragged out in the jungle, be wounded, half-starved, sitting there, people speaking another language, you, they're angry at you, you're upset, you don't know what's going on, what's going to happen to you. What's your state like? Why, you're just, you're afraid of everything. You've lost all ability to trust anyone who comes to the door of your little hut. And there are people in good old prosperous, yes, we are prosperous America today who are exactly like that. Their lives are just churning. No peace, no resolution to anything. 
God is telling his people this. You can believe it. He has paid the price to pardon us. And that is the basis of all comfort. Now, there's a second point here, and I'll deal with it real quickly. In verse 3, very familiar words on the Christmas scene, especially in music and oratorios. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for your God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. You hear these words at Christmas. Have you ever thought about what they are saying? It seems to me the text is saying God is determined to come to you, to build, as it were, a highway to you right through every obstacle that might stand in his way. He's going to build a highway from heaven right to you. If you know anything about civil engineering, building a road or a railroad, you know, the, the story of the Intercontinental Railroad across the United States is amazing, especially out in the Rocky Mountains. The hundreds of Chinese laborers whose lives weren't even valued, who were dynamited and buried in avalanches as by hand they chopped their way through the Rocky Mountains and filled in valleys and cut tunnels and a train, you know, only takes about a 2 or 3% grade. That's a very, very shallow grade. It can't take a 5 or 6 or 10% grade. It takes something to make a highway for a train through the Rocky Mountains. God says, I'm going to make a highway to you. And there are obstacles in the way. They need to be cleared. Does He call on us? You know, I think this is often misunderstood. Is this text saying, get to work, get a pick, Get a shovel. Start working. Clean up your life so God can get to it. It doesn't say that. It says it's a highway for your God. God is the one who's going to travel this road. And the only thing I know that we're able to do to in any way prepare for the coming of God is to repent of sin. More than that is going to have to happen. Repentance is important. But God is going to have to send His crew to make this highway And if it isn't too crude a way to speak, I believe he did that. He sent a crew of one. He sent Jesus. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm the way that anyone comes to the Father. And with me, the Father comes to you. So it isn't a case of get your shovel, make things ready. God is announcing that a highway of grace and mercy is coming toward you. And Christ will break down the obstacles and come and enter even those who resist. Those who are so messed up that they're afraid of him when he appears. They think he's another kidnapper. The hymn writer John Newton was also a preacher. You know him for Amazing Grace and other hymns, but he was a preacher. Isaiah had a, or I'm sorry, Newton had a sermon on this text. And he took the imagery here, the crooked shall be straight and the rough places made a plain. Here's what he said, quoting him. Jesus came to set right the perverse disposition of human hearts, to soften and subdue our obstinate spirits, and to form and build a people willing to receive him. You see, Newton saw this road work, this clearing a path as what God does in our hearts comes to us and makes a way that His truth might enter us and might change us and might give us that faith that we might trust in Him. 
Well, thirdly, a promise here this morning. Our time is shorter than normal. The promise comes in verse 5 to say this, you will see God's glory revealed. You know, it's a a great thing to read here. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind will see it together. It's enough to say God has solved the problem. He's paid the price. God is coming to you. He's making way for Him to approach you and change you. But now He's saying when He comes to you, you're going to see His glory. Now, this is nothing less than a wonderful disclosure of believers being able to see who God is and see His glorious attributes. People have always wanted to see that, you know. You go back to the Old Testament, Moses, Exodus 33. Remember that moment when Moses made a small request of God? He was looking for a little reassurance, and he said, Lord, just show me your glory. Didn't want too much, did he? And God made it clear he couldn't see that. It would destroy him if he saw it. And Moses saw something. We don't understand what, but it was, it was like a passing of God's shadow, you might say. Something that, that was an indicator of power and might, but it wasn't the face of God. And then it came again in the disciple Philip in the New Testament, John 14. Again, a fairly presumptuous question. When Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father, that will be enough for us. What? Do you know what you're asking? I just have this little request, Lord. Show us the Father. Well, Jesus had his answer ready, didn't he? And he said, Philip, have I been with you this long and you haven't gotten it yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ claimed to be the revelation of the glory of God in his incarnation, in his birth, in his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, that's God's glory. And we are going to see that glory. Every eye is going to see that glory in history when he returns one day. Colossians 1 says, in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in a human body. Hebrews 1 says, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. What Moses and Philip were so presumptuous to ask for We are allowed to glimpse in the Christ of history and the coming Christ who we look to in faith and hope and know he will be revealed one day. So God's glory isn't a theory. It's not a theology premise. It's a person. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 has the summary of it. It's a text you should memorize, one of the great texts of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God... God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. The Creator, in other words. That God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has shown His glory just as Isaiah said He would. These promises from Isaiah a long time ago were to people who were going to experience terrible, deep distress Rack and ruin. They would decide that life was over. All hope was gone. Their government would be destroyed. Their finances, their homes would be taken away. And God said, don't worry. I've let you taste the bitterness of your disobedience and your idolatry, but I've also paid the price 
to liberate you. When God comforts those who believe in Him, He doesn't just pat us on the back and saying, there, there, it's going to be all right. Instead, He says, I've fixed the problem. Your captivity will end. My peace will be with you. My Son will come to you, breaking down every obstacle to find you. He'll bring you home again. And in Christ, you'll taste my glory. God guarantees it. Thanks be to Him. Our Father, as we come today and remember Jesus at this table, may we be comforted in this real way. May we know Him to be the key of David, to unlock all the distress, all the tumult of our lives, all the things that have gone wrong. You have unlocked it, and it's not as what you've given us as a solution is not the fixing of our national economic woes. It's the fixing of our heart woe. And we thank you that you addressed the most important problem. We praise you, in fact, in Jesus' name. Amen.